0: On this edition of the Strangeology Podcast, I'll be diving into the story of the Borden murders, an event so brutal and notorious that it gained the attention of the entirety of America and beyond in the late 1800s. There will be descriptions and recounting of violence, gore, and death, so listener discretion is advised. Stay tuned. to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host Jeff Foran, and this is your place to explore the weird, strange, and unexplained. from cryptids and creatures, the paranormal, aliens and UFOs, forbidden knowledge, ancient mysteries, conspiracies, and more. Hey everyone and welcome back to the show. Thank you for bearing with me as this episode is coming out a week later than I originally had planned. Last week was one of those weeks where there was a lot going on around my house with home improvement projects and getting ready for the winter that needed to happen. And I needed just a little bit more time to get all my ducks in a row for the episode. With regards to research and making sure I get all the details right, because there's a lot of details in this and a lot of information, so want to make sure we're on track. But anyway, before I get started, make sure to take a minute to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to or streaming from, and set your device to auto-download so that you never miss a new episode. And it also helps me out a ton. One of the biggest ways to help the show grow, of course, is to share it around with your friends, your family, your social networks, and also don't forget to give me a follow over on all of my social media accounts as well. I'm over on Instagram, which is my main base of operations for social media, but also Facebook, TikTok, X, and Threads, and I even have a website too with a blog on strangeology.com. So if you enjoy the Strangeology podcast and want to find out what I'm up to on a regular basis or want to see more short form video content and other content from me, that's where you can find me. Links for that will be in the show notes as always. And if you like what you hear and want to show some support for the show and become a member of a growing Fortean community of fellow weirdos, make sure to check out my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash strangeology. There's a bunch of different tiers starting at just $1 a month and Each tier up has increasing perks like shout outs, merch discounts from my Etsy shop, exclusive merch for members, ad free and early access to episodes, voting power on what I'll research for new episodes, as well as access to Strangeology Beyond, which is the members only episode extension. Sometimes it's a whole different episode on a different topic by itself. It's a great time and I'd love to see you there. Again, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology. All right, we're going to keep the intro a little bit short today because I don't really have any other announcements. And since Halloween is just days away from the release of this episode, I figured that I had to do something scary or creepy, true crimey. So for today's episode... I decided that we're going to go journey back to New England, where it all started with this podcast. This is going to be part three of my Oddities of New England series, featuring the Borden murders. Lizzie Borden was an infamous case that kind of rocked America in the late 1800s. And this is also, I think, the first time I'm really covering... A kind of true crime type of story or topic. And it's a wild one. So strap in folks and enjoy. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother forty wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty one. This is a famous poem, author unknown, written about one of New England's most infamous and unsolved murders, which happened in 1892. According to many, it was something written to sell newspapers, but based on a very real and very brutal double murder that happened in Fall River, Massachusetts. Lizzie Borden turned out to be the primary suspect in the killing of her father, And stepmother. The investigation, arrest, indictment, and trial took place over a very long year. And despite overwhelming evidence pointing to her being responsible for the act, she was found innocent and the case was ultimately thrown out. So, who was Lizzie Borden and how and why did this all happen? In the early 19th century, the city of Fall River had established itself as a hub for the textile industry, with the Borden family being at the center of it all. By the summer of 1860, a man named Andrew Borden, a family member of the wealthy Borden family, was a successful self-made business owner. He and his first wife, Sarah, had just welcomed their third child into the world, a daughter that they named Lizzie. However, Lizzie's life would be one that followed a path of tragedy and misfortune, culminating in becoming the primary suspect in the wake of the grisly axe murder of her father and stepmother 32 years later. Now, for more background on the Borden family, Lizzie's father Andrew grew up in Fall River as well, but despite being a descendant of the wealthy Borden family who pretty much ran the textile industry in town, he struggled financially and eked by with a meager existence in his younger years. He didn't really get any help from his family. Eventually, he did find success selling furniture and funeral caskets. And later on, he became a successful property developer as well as being the director of a number of textile mills and the owner of a number of commercial properties by the time of his death his estate was worth around $300,000 in 1892 money which by today's valuation was around 10 million so he was doing pretty well for himself all things considered despite this andrew was a very frugal man with his money and Lizzie, along with her older sister Emma, grew up living only on the basic necessities of the time. Now, her father and mother had hoped to have a son to carry on the family name and business, but to their chagrin, they had another daughter. And this hope for a son was why Lizzie's middle name was Andrew, named after Andrew Borden, of course. and. Perhaps there was some kind of toxic resentment of the fact that Lizzie was born female and that this led to him withholding from his children and giving them a better life growing up because he definitely had the means. And this family dynamic definitely comes into play later as we explore this case. An example of this withholding was during Lizzie's childhood when Communities started to become powered by electricity in the later half of the 19th century. For those who were affluent enough to afford it, it was definitely a way to show off your wealth and how well-to-do you were. To everyone else who didn't have as much, it would be like watching MTV Cribs and seeing all the wild crap that people can buy with their money, right? Now, Lizzie's father... Andrew flat-out refused to pay any money for getting their home wired up to the grid. And beyond that, he also refused to have indoor plumbing put in the house when it was fairly available for people who could afford it at the time. And that must have gotten on some nerves with Lizzie and her sister, Emma, seeing others in the more upper affluent class with all the modern amenities at the time like this. And even though your family can afford it, it's the outhouse for you or a bedpan. And likewise, the upper class in their community judged them for Andrew's lack of willingness to invest in these modern comforts. So beyond being forced to live a frugal life, they were also being judged by the outside community and there was this pressure and people making fun of them in the background. Another thing to drive the point home about Andrew Borden being a bit of a scrooge was that he owned additional properties, residential properties, one of which was this nice home in the wealthy end of Fall River up on the hill. And that's where All the rich people lived. But instead of living in this nicer estate, he chose to have everyone live in this smaller house on the other side of town, closer to all of the industry and all of the textile mills. Andrew's stinginess became so well-known in town that people often cracked jokes about his casket business and that he would have the bodies of the dead's feet chopped off to save money on the wood to construct shorter coffins. It's kind of wild. Now, darkness and tragedy seem to follow Lizzie and her family's life, even before she was born. Andrew and Lizzie's mother, Sarah, their second daughter, the middle child was named Alice and she died before Lizzie was even born at the age of two. And, and, When Lizzie was only three years old, tragedy struck again when her mother, Sarah, died of a combination of, quote, uterine congestion and spinal disease. Today, it's thought that she may have had thrombosis and died from a blood clot. And back then, doctors would prescribe something called laudanum for the sharp abdominal pains that people with this condition would get, which is, basically opium and alcohol, and was completely ineffective in treating the condition and actually served to complicate things more, which contributed to Sarah's dying of this condition that she had. Thrombosis wasn't really something that doctors and the medical community had a great grasp on in the late 1800s, so either way you put it, Sarah was probably... Going to die anyway. And then, within two years after Sarah's passing, Andrew met his second wife, a woman named Abby Gray. Lizzie's sister, Emma, was nine years older than her and had a much better memory of their mother passing and an overall better grasp on the world. And as part of their mother's dying wish, Emma took to raising Lizzie, where they formed a very close bond. After their father remarried, Emma made it clear to Abby that she didn't like her at all and influenced Lizzie's view on it as well. The sentiment became shared, and over the years, it got to the point of them downright openly despising their stepmother, Abby and Emma much more so than Lizzie. And according to the story, she would only refer to Abby as Mrs. Borden, never as mom or mother, just Mrs. Borden. As Lizzie grew up in Fall River, she became heavily involved in the community. And growing up in a fairly religious household, she spent much of her time being involved in church activities like teaching Sunday school to kids and participating in different Christian organizations. And in a seemingly contradictory way, Lizzie was also very invested in the women's suffrage movement. Contradictory because it seems like Christian dogma at the time wasn't very supportive of this kind of thing. And she was very into social reform and women's rights in general that really started to take off in the late 1800s. Something that was kind of the antithesis of the church and the people who were religious back then, it seems. Basically, the Borden family in general was one of contradictions. And also, reflecting back on Lizzie's father growing up poor, And then earning enough wealth to support a very comfortable life for him and his family, yet not providing that and being a huge penny pincher. And there's a lot of contradictions that come into play later about Lizzie, but we'll get into that. So for 30 years, Lizzie's resentment of her father grew. Same with Emma. Envious of the lives of others in her community, especially those of her cousins on the board inside of the family who lived much more extravagant lives than her. Lives and comforts that she felt entitled to and that she deserved, but was ultimately refused by her father, who basically gatekept all of his wealth <laughs> from his family. Lizzie and Emma were given money, a pittance for An allowance, all things considered, but kept away from the high society and social circles of the wealthy class of business owners in Fall River that they technically belonged to. So it's thought that one of the factors that influenced Andrew to keep his wealth from Lizzie and Emma was their stepmother, Abby. They believed that she was merely a gold digger, marrying into the family for the money. And sticking around long enough until Andrew died, where she would take the money and go back to her birth family or go somewhere else. The problem with this, though, is that she was only six years younger than Andrew. So who knows? I guess you can still get into a situation and try to manipulate a wealthy man or something like that. I don't know. (laughs) But according to the live-in maid that they had in the house, this 25-year-old Irish immigrant named Bridget Sullivan, who they nicknamed Maggie. Tensions were high within the family unit as Lizzie and Emma rarely sat down to share meals together with their parents, and I'm sure certain things were overheard being said as well. Lots of talking trash behind each other's backs, that kind of thing. Adding more insult to injury, despite years of lobbying for their father to spend the money to increase their quality of life and live more comfortably, like their rich cousins and the other well-to-dos in town. One day, Andrew gifted Abby's sister a whole house. And this act caused an even bigger rift between Lizzie, her sister, and their parents. Rumors spread around town of the incendiary and heated arguments that took place over what Lizzie and Emma saw and felt was a grave injustice against them. Now, Andrew eventually conceded and wound up handing over the deed to the different home that they lived in until their birth mother, Sarah, had died. He sold it to them for only $1. And sometime later, just a few weeks actually, before Andrew and Abby Borden were murdered, Lizzie and Emma sold the deed back to Andrew for this house that they never even went and lived in for $5,000. So (laughs) that's that's a big flip right there. Now, in the days leading up to the infamous Axe murder, Andrew and Abby took a trip out of Fall River, which was uncharacteristic of them as they rarely left the area. And upon their return home, they found that a locked desk in the house had been broken into and ransacked. Money had been stolen along with heirlooms, a pocketbook, a watch, and some other valuable items that belonged to Abby, which had a lot of sentimental value to her. By today's standards, the amount of items that were stolen were worth around $2,000. And even though Lizzie and her sister and Bridget, the maid, were likely home at the time of this break-in and robbery They all claimed that they heard nothing happening in the house. The authorities investigated, but no thief was ever caught, and nobody was ever named as a suspect in this crime. After which, Andrew told them to not say anything about it. He didn't want Lizzie and Emma, or Bridget for that matter, telling their neighbors in the community that someone had broken into their house for fear of a copycat set of burglars that might start descending upon their home since it was known that Andrew had money. So he also ordered everyone to start to lock the doors to the house at all times, even if they were home. Before then, I guess things were different. When they were home, they would just leave the doors unlocked. Probably overall a safer environment than a lot of places today, right? But who knows? Maybe a good practice to to get into anyway, to keep your doors locked even when you're home. But the whole thing sounds kind of suspicious, if you ask me. Now, word had been circulating through town about Lizzie, who was rumored to have been a bit of a thief and a shoplifter. Interesting. And that she was responsible for the theft of items from stores around town, although she never got caught. So historians who have studied this case extensively believe that this burglary was likely Lizzie's doing and Emma and the maid were potentially in on it too, especially if they were home. There's no way you're not going to hear someone busting into a desk unless she was really good at picking locks or something like that. None of that is confirmed and can't really be at this point, but it definitely seems like a plausible theory. Another curious event leading up to Andrew and Abby's murders was during July of that year. It was unseasonably hot in New England, so much so that 90 people had died from heat stroke and exhaustion, with the majority of that number, unfortunately, being children. So maybe the heat and the paranoia was getting to Andrew, but the Bordens owned a flock of pigeons, which were kept in a roost that Lizzie had built for them behind the property barn, which used to house the family horse, which Andrew sold off, and Lizzie was already unhappy about this, but Andrew goes and takes all of the pigeons out of their roost and decapitates all of them with a hatchet. Historians think that it's likely that he was either trying to send a message to would-be burglars coming onto the property, trying to break in. Maybe they would see all these headless birds and get freaked out and decide to get out of there. Although it's not clear how this message was intended to be displayed were they left in the cages or posted up on a fence to scare people. Either way, the site would be a little bit disconcerting. And it's also very concerning that Andrew did this in the first place. So when Lizzie got wind of what her father was doing, and she was still upset about the selling of the family horse, she flipped out over all the dead pigeons. It's known that she was a very, very big proponent of animals. She loved animals and even left a bunch of money to an animal charity after her death. So I can definitely see why she would be furious about this and the more and more that we're diving into the story of lizzie borden and her family the more and more dysfunctional they seem to get and all of this is leading to a head throughout the rest of the month of july the familial arguing between andrew abby lizzie and emma got so heated that lizzie and emma took an unplanned and unprompted trip to New Bedford, Massachusetts for a week. They did not return until July 26. And it's not clear what it was that they were doing there. And even after returning to Fall River, Lizzie had decided to stay at a rooming house, which was a kind of less expensive apartment, but more like a hotel model of business where you could stay as long or as short as you wanted to. It was essentially like a large dormitory where you got your own small room. It wasn't like a shared space, like a hostel, but the bathroom and shower and other amenities like the kitchen cafeteria type of place were all shared by the people who were renting rooms. But I digress. So at this point, it's only days before the murders take place. When Lizzie finally did return to the Borden house on August 3rd, she found her father and stepmother in the throes of a mysterious sickness, which was likely food poisoning. Andrew was becoming delusional and believed that somebody was actually trying to poison them after the alleged break-in, which was likely Lizzie just stealing stuff out of the desk. And what probably likely happened was that they had consumed spoiled food that hadn't kept due to the extreme heat they had been dealing with and they didn't have refrigeration back then. And even the maid, Bridget succumb to, to getting sick as well. It was said that they were eating mutton and that it had probably gone rancid from what I understand. So Lizzie maybe out of concern rushed to get the local doctor to come by to treat them although when the doctor arrived Andrew pretty much refused any help claiming to be fine and that he's not going to pay the doctor anything. <laughs> And it was documented that later that day, Lizzie traveled to the town pharmacy and attempted to purchase a substance called prussic acid or hydrogen cyanide, which is very deadly to humans. She claimed that she was trying to get it because she needed to clean a sealskin cape, but the pharmacist at this place refused the sale of this substance to her. And to add another layer of things going on, Lizzie's uncle, a man named John Morse, who was her birth mother, Sarah's brother, was expected for a visit. He had been invited to stay for a few days to talk business with Andrew. John and Andrew used to be close friends, but after Sarah died some 30 years prior, they had grown quite distant. And Also, being the sibling of his first wife, it seemed there was also tension with Abby having a family member of his deceased first wife visiting, probably not wanting John over there to discuss things like business propositions and money, which was also certain to get Andrew worked up as well because he was so stingy with his wealth. So that night, as her uncle John and father discussed business matters, Lizzie was said to have gone to visit her friend, a woman named Alice Russell. She confided in Alice that she felt depressed and as if something was hanging over her that she couldn't shake. And this feeling would come and go at will. And she also talked about her relationship and perception of her father and how he ran things in the family and with his business and that she was unhappy with it. Of course, as we understand, she felt that she deserved a lot more because of her father's wealth and wanted to live a much more extravagant life. After she returned home around 9 p.m. that evening, she went upstairs to her room without interacting with anyone who was still up in the house at that time. The following morning, August 4th, 1892, is the day where everything finally comes to a head. It's said that Lizzie skipped joining the family for breakfast, which wasn't unusual considering the statement of of the maid, Bridget, saying that it was rare, if ever, that Lizzie or her sister Emma would ever share a meal with her parents, while her uncle John had gone out to the other side of town to visit other family members on his side, although he had been invited back by Andrew to have dinner with them that evening and likely to Discuss business matters further. In the meantime, Abby had put Bridget to work, even though she was still struggling with being sick and it was still hot as hell outside. So, after doing some inside chores, Bridget was ordered to go outside into the blazing heat to go clean windows. She ventured over to the barn, which is when she saw. Lizzie loitering around the back doorway, and this was around nine thirty in the morning, according to Bridget's testimony, she told Lizzie in that moment that she didn't need to worry about locking any doors in case of any burglars, as she was outside working and had eyes on the property now, this next part I'm going to go into is. The grisly details about the murders. So, if you don't like gore or intense imagery, definitely be warned. You can skip ahead to the trial in probably 10 to 15 minutes. So, it's been determined that sometime between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. on August 4th, Abby Borden met her fate. After breakfast, she was in the middle of tidying some things on the second floor guest room of the house. When somebody came in, murdering her in cold blood by 17 blows from an axe or a hatchet. Interesting that that was the murder weapon, considering the hatchet used to decapitate all of those pigeons. From the known forensics of the crime scene, From the placement and direction that the blows from the axe were taken, it was clear that she was looking directly at her attacker when it happened. After probably the first hack and slash took place, Abby's body hit the floor, and every strike thereafter was sunk into the back of her skull. 17 total blows. That's a lot more than a double tap, and definitely excessive. Like someone was either enjoying it or going through an extreme emotional catharsis and release from pent-up anger and rage. If this was just a burglar with the intent to kill, you would think that they would do it in just a couple of blows and move on. But instead, Abby's head was effectively pulverized. Now, while this was happening, Andrew had left the house for a walk. Normally, his morning walks would last for quite a while, but since he was still recovering from this sickness, this probably food poisoning, he came back quicker than expected. A neighbor recalled observing Andrew returning home after his walk and saw him trying to open the door to his house, but for some reason, he couldn't get inside. It was like the door was stuck. It's speculated that maybe him being old and he was in his seventies at the time and still recovering from being sick, that he was too weak to open the door or that perhaps he brought the wrong key and was fumbling around, or maybe someone was inside making a plan for his return and didn't expect him that early after knocking and pounding on the door. Bridget, the maid, was finally seen by this neighbor after Andrew struggled and saw her let him in. It also seemed like Bridget was struggling to open the door as well, which is interesting. Later on, Bridget recalled these minutes before Andrew's death, and it was after 930 at this point as she had finished cleaning windows outside in the heat and had moved. Inside the house. She remembered hearing Lizzie at the top of the stairs chuckling as she fought to open the door to let Andrew in. And if Lizzie was really in the room above this door, across the hall was the guest room where Abby's dead body was laying. So one would think that she would have probably noticed that, but she made no mention of it when she came downstairs. So Andrew started to settle in. And Lizzie makes her appearance and they begin to chat in the dining room before Andrew proceeds to go upstairs to his bedroom for a minute, missing the guest room where his wife is dead on the floor. And then he goes back downstairs to the sitting room to take a nap. None the wiser, of course, to Abby's lifeless and bludgeoned corpse upstairs. After Andrew had laid down for a nap, Lizzie claimed that she had begun to work on things like ironing and sewing and reading while Bridget finished cleaning all of the windows in the house. The two had some pretty normal conversation and apparently nothing seemed off like either of them knew Abby was dead as a doornail upstairs and Bridget was still feeling pretty rough. And at this point, decided to go up to her living quarters, which were in the attic. If it's as hot as they say it was in July of 1892, going up to the attic would probably feel like a furnace. Now, some time passed, and it was now 11 a.m. Bridget recalled hearing Lizzie downstairs frantically calling for her, saying, Maggie, come quick, father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. So Bridget rushes downstairs and finds Lizzie in the parlor and sees the horrific sight of Andrew's body laid out on the couch, blood everywhere, killed by 10 to 11 blows from a weapon like a axe or hatchet. And all of it was directed towards his head. One of his eyeballs apparently was cut cleanly in half from one of the blows. So because of this, it's thought that Andrew was still asleep and never actually saw the murderer coming. And it was all very recent too, as his blood was still draining out of the wounds. Now, Maggie or Bridget didn't recall hearing any kind of struggle or noise while she was in her attic room. Maybe there was enough space and walls and insulation that made it hard to hear things on other floors in the house, or maybe there was something else going on, some kind of foul play. So after seeing Andrew's body, Bridget ran out to go find the doctor. I don't know what good a doctor is going to do at this point other than say, yeah, he's dead, but... Okay, like you probably want to get in touch with the police or a coroner first. But anyway, it turns out that the doctor who came to visit them the day prior to help out with their food poisoning, which Andrew refused because he felt fine, was not in his office at that point. After returning to the house, Lizzie told Bridget to go fetch her friend Alice Russell and bring her over to the house as she claimed that she couldn't bear to be alone in the house at that moment with her father dead and if you're wondering where emma is in all of this it said that she had been unaware of any of this happening as she was visiting a friend in the town of fairhaven which was a little ways away by standards back then and after she got a telegram to return home because of the emergency, she actually took her time getting home, which is interesting, but also shows the disdain that she had for her parents and not wanting to rush to come home because her parents are dead.
1: New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
0: And one of their neighbors, a woman named Adelaide Churchill, is outside and notices Bridget's distress and goes to see what the deal is. She informs her that Andrew had been murdered and in short manner, Nearby neighbors and other passersby heard the news and word traveled real fast. And within minutes, someone who actually had access to a telephone was able to call the police to come out. So the Fall River Police, along with a cadre of concerned neighbors and city residents, descended upon the Borden family home. At this point, it's not officially known that Abby is also dead in the house on the second floor. While the crime scene around Andrew's body is being investigated, somebody asked to have a sheet to cover up Andrew's body. And it was noted that Bridget strangely said, better make it two. Some think that this is an indication that she may have known that Abby was actually dead upstairs, or maybe it was just, so much blood and gore that one sheet would soak through. It was also said by most at the scene that Lizzie was behaving rather strangely. She showed no sign of emotion, sadness, or being any kind of distraught that her father was just brutally murdered. We know from our perspective of what her upbringing was, how she was treated, and the kind of lifestyle she felt that she deserved, and wanted to live and it's pretty clear that she hated her father and to be that cold in the moments after his death could make sense maybe it was a trauma reaction or maybe she was a sociopath and was the killer but we'll look into that evidence more shortly so when lizzie was questioned of her whereabouts during andrew's murder She said some contradictory things. Remember I said there were some contradictions from Lizzie coming up earlier in the episode. So first she said that she was in the barn while this was all taking place looking for iron to fix a screen door. And later on, she changed her story to say that she was actually looking for lead sinkers for a fishing trip. That was planned coming up. And those are pretty different items. And you gotta wonder why they didn't question her further as to why the story was changed there. Kind of a minor detail, but I would think fairly important when trying to figure out what's going on with Lizzie and why she's acting so strange. She also initially told authors that. While outside in the backyard, walking to the house from the barn, she did hear some strange noises coming from inside the house. And it was then, after walking inside and into the parlor, that's when she claimed to have found her father's dead body, and when she yelled up to Bridget upstairs. Later on, though, she changed this detail and said she didn't hear strange noises coming from the house at all. She also said that she was present when her father came back into the house from his walk after Bridget had struggled to get the door open for him and even helped him out of his walking boots and into slippers before he laid down for a nap in the parlor. The problem with that, however, was that Andrew was still wearing his boots, which can clearly be seen in the crime scene photos. So. Why change back out of the slippers and into boots? It's pretty clear that something was going on here because Lizzie kept changing the story, which is usually a pretty strong indication that someone is lying if they can't get their story straight. And all while this was going on, nobody knew where Abby Borden was or that she too was dead by the hands of an axe murderer. And this is when Abby was found. The police wanted to be able to notify her about the fate of her husband. But when Lizzie was asked if she knew where Abby was, she continued to respond in a calm and detached manner, which was starting to unnerve people a little bit and cause suspicion among the police. According to Lizzie, she claimed that she had a note from Abby saying that she was going out of the house for a while. But later that morning, Lizzie claimed that she heard someone upstairs and assumed it was her stepmother. Now, if she was upstairs during all the commotion of Lizzie yelling to Bridget that her father had been slain and didn't come to see what was happening, is a little strange. Doesn't really add up, right? And at that point, Bridget and their neighbor Adelaide Churchill, who had come into the house, were tasked to go upstairs to go fetch Abby. And, well, they found her, all right. When they were halfway up the stairs, they could see the door looking into the guest room where Abby was. And as soon as their eyes met the level of the second floor walking up the steps, they could see her bloody, bludgeoned body. Lying on the floor. Now, Lizzie's Uncle John, who had gone out to the other side of town to visit other family members, had just returned to the Borden property, presumably to meet up with Andrew and chat about money and business and all that. He was apparently loitering outside, picking the fruit from a pear tree and having a snack. And completely unaware that a double homicide had just taken place. When he finally went inside, he was informed of the situation, and after viewing the bodies of Andrew and Abby, he pretty much spent the rest of the day outside, away from the scene. The authorities, for some reason, viewed this behavior as suspicious, although it was likely some kind of shock or trauma response to seeing The gruesome scene of your brother-in-law and his second wife being brutally murdered and having their heads bashed in. And the only other person that the police found suspicious was Lizzie due to her detached behavior and contradictory statements, which makes a little bit more sense for her to be an initial suspect. Right. So with all this going on, they know that Andrew is dead. And now that they know Abby is dead. As well. So let's get into the evidence. Apparently, during all of this, even though Lizzie was acting strange and the authorities suspected something, nobody thought to check her for any blood staining or anything else that might implicate her involvement in the murders anything on her clothing, on her person, messed up hair, anything. And beyond that, the officers really only conducted a cursory examination of the house itself to see if anything was off. And they didn't even really check Lizzie's room either, as that was kind of a taboo thing back then to rifle through a woman's belongings. I mean, it still is today, right? But police didn't really want to do it. And that's kind of where where that investigation ended for that part. The only thing that was found in the house were some potential murder weapons in the basement in the form of hatchets that were sitting on the dirt cellar floor that were in a pile of ash and dirt. And interestingly, one of these looked very suspicious. It wasn't a full hatchet. It was just the metal hatchet head and the handle had been removed at some point there wasn't any blood on it however it had been very very clearly recently moved as the ash and dirt that it was sitting in was disturbed where the other hatchets sitting nearby had no sign of being moved and had clearly been sitting there for quite a while the hatchet head in question also had a thin layer of dirt that had been tossed onto it as well, which made it look like someone was trying to fake that it had been sitting there for a while. The team of investigators were pretty inept, though, because even though they thought it was weird, they waited several days before they decided that it was something that could be used as evidence as they were building a case to charge somebody with murder. The police also asked if Lizzie still had the note from Abby saying that she was leaving the house in the morning, but she couldn't remember until Alice, her friend who was with her in the kitchen, was patting her forehead with a damp cloth, suggesting that she probably threw it into a fire that was going. And Lizzie was just like, oh, yeah, must have been what I did with it now. Bridget and Alice stayed very close with Lizzie in the hours and days following the murders. And when questioned at the trial a year later, their testimony backed up Lizzie's story and definitely helped her out a lot. Perhaps they knew something or they were in on it or just trying to help out in getting their story straight to support Lizzie. They denied ever seeing anything out of place in the home that could connect her to the murders or with her clothing or anything that would say she swung an axe wildly into her parents' heads. So later on in the day following the murders, the coroner finally came in and this guy brought Abby and Andrew's bodies into. The dining room and autopsied them right on the dining room table. One of the first things that was done was the removal of their stomachs, which were tested for poisoning, which came out negative. So nobody was trying to poison them, as Andrew had suspected from their food poisoning sickness event the day prior. But I don't think that poison is why they have a dozen ax wounds in what's left of their heads seems kind of like a silly thing to do. I guess part of the toxicology report, maybe that's important. Who knows? This is also very early forensics. So things are not quite as developed as to what they are today when investigating crime scenes like this. So at some point, Emma finally returned home However, after the initial autopsy, the bodies of Andrew and Abby were left there, covered in white sheets only for several days, to the point where they started to stink. Like, can you imagine? They just left the bodies there. I'm not sure if there was not room in a morgue or they needed to just keep the crime scene like it was until they decided they investigated fully. And during this time, the Fall River Police had also posted officers to guard the house and to keep Lizzie, Emma, Bridget, John, and even Lizzie's friend Alice from leaving the house and from any of the public from trying to get in. The reason why is because they were all considered suspects at the time, since they were present at the house or nearby the house house just before, during, or just after the murders happened. Uncle John actually tried to leave the house on August 5th, but wound up being mobbed by hundreds of curious people outside of the house, and the police had to escort him back in and keep him on lockdown. A few days later, on August 8th, there was an inquest hearing to question Lizzie about what she knew. It seemed that she was becoming the primary suspect as the investigation went further. Her testimony and behavior during the inquest was erratic, to say the least, which is believed to be largely caused by her use of morphine to calm her nerves as prescribed by her doctor. Different times then, for sure. So her testimony here is thought to be somewhat unreliable as she wouldn't answer certain questions, even ones that would help her case. And she continued to contradict her statements and would change details from the previous thing that she had just said. So it's thought that she may have been pretty drugged up and didn't really understand what was being asked of her, but even her behavior on the day of the murder, was erratic, contradictory, and suspicious as well, which didn't make her look very good. A few days after the inquest, the police continued to investigate the case and decided to put up a reward for the capture of the killer. It was during this time that something else kind of suspicious happened. Lizzie was in the kitchen this morning with Emma and Alice and presented a blue dress of hers that she had recently sewn together. When Alice asked her about this dress and what the deal was with it, was she going to do anything to it? Was she going to wear it? What's going on here? She said that she was going to burn it as it was faded, soiled and covered in quote paint stains, even though it was a dress that she just made. It was practically brand new. And it was said that Lizzie only ever wore the dress when nobody was visiting the house. So if she wore it very little, it's pretty suspicious that it would get so messed up so fast. Definitely not out of the realm of possibilities, depending on what you're doing. But if you took the time to make it, one would think, You might take a little bit better care of it, right? And so the dress was thrown into the kitchen stove and burned. Meanwhile, her friend Alice was like, this is a terrible idea because the authorities already suspect that she may have been involved and burning a piece of clothing that's stained with something may have been evidence and if those paint stains were actually blood, then it would only draw more suspicion to her for destroying this potential piece of evidence. And here's the kicker. The day before Lizzie burned the dress, the mayor of Fall River at the time, a man named John W. Coughlin, tipped off Lizzie, letting her know that an investigation against her as the primary suspect in the murders was happening, and that within the next day, she was going to be arrested And taken into custody. The funerals for Andrew and Abby took place on August 11th. And after investigating and questioning everybody in the house, Lizzie Borden was charged with double homicide and arrested. Lizzie spent the next 10 months in jail awaiting her trial. And in the meantime, the stories of the Borden murders swept the country and the case became a national sensation. After a grand jury began hearing evidence on November 7th of 1892, she was finally indicted on December 2nd. And then, finally, the trial began on June 5th, 1893, in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Interestingly, only five days before this trial began, there was this other axe murder that happened in Fall River. The victim was a woman named Bertha Manchester, who was found Hacked to death in her kitchen, which was noted by the jury as having a rather uncanny similarity to the Borden murders. But it was found that a Portuguese immigrant wound up being convicted in that case a year later in 1894. But I'm sure it raised some eyebrows regarding Lizzie Borden's potential innocence or guilt. Was there another axe murderer? running around Fall River that could have potentially killed Andrew and Abby. One of the biggest pieces of evidence that the prosecution had was that hatchet head found in the Borden's cellar. And it seemed to have been very recently used and made to look like it hadn't been. However, the prosecution couldn't convince the court or the jury that it was The murder weapon. Somehow, another big piece of evidence—or lack thereof—was the dress that Lizzie burned on August eighth of eighteen ninety-two. No bloodied clothing had apparently been found at the house during the investigation. However, Alice Russell was on the stand with some new information. In two prior hearings, Alice hadn't mentioned anything about this information likely to protect Lizzie. But the third time that she testified during the trial, she came clean. She explained that she had voiced her concerns to Lizzie in the moment that it was a bad idea to burn the dress. And after the fact, Lizzie actually guilted her, saying, why didn't you tell me that this was a terrible idea? Why did you make me do it? which sounds like kind of passing the blame on her actions to someone else and manipulating the situation, right? The admission about the burning of the dress in the courtroom was a betrayal of trust, and Lizzie and Alice never spoke to each other again after this. Lizzie's response during the trial was the claim that she had brushed up against wet paint and it had ruined the dress and... That's why she burned it. And for some reason, nobody challenged this statement. I suppose there was no evidence anymore, so they really couldn't. The trial then went over the course of events from where Lizzie was in the home, whether she was inside or out in the barn like she claimed, and then finding Andrew's body when she came back inside, yelling up to Bridget, the maid, to come help with the situation and allegedly not knowing that Abby was also dead in the guest room upstairs. As far as the evidence admitted during the trial, apparently the skulls of Andrew and Abby had been removed from their bodies and brought to the courtroom as evidence. And when Lizzie saw their mashed up skulls, she actually fainted. And other evidence that made Lizzie look suspicious in all of this was The attempt to buy the prussic acid or the hydrogen cyanide from the local pharmacy. This was actually excluded and deemed by the judge to be too remote to be connected to the murders. It's not like Lizzie was potentially trying to buy a lethal toxic substance to maybe slip into somebody's food and take them out, right? After the court heard all of the evidence and questioning, the presiding associate justice delivered a long overview of the case to the jury who were sent to deliberate the case on June 20th. After about an hour to an hour and a half of debate and deliberation, the jury finally came out and their decision was that they deemed all the evidence put forth to be only circumstantial and not enough to prove that she was the one who murdered Andrew and Abby Borden. And thus, Lizzie Borden was acquitted and set free. When leaving the courthouse, newspaper reporters swarmed outside as the story of this trial grew and became so sensationalized. In that moment, Lizzie told them that she was the happiest woman in the world. And following the trial... Lizzie lived a rather comfortable and mostly happy life, inheriting a good portion of her father's wealth. After everything that transpired over the past year following the murders, she started going by the name Lizbeth instead, which is interesting. Kind of a fresh start, if you will. She had become so infamous in Fall River as Lizzie Borden That that kind of makes sense. And even though she was acquitted and the case was thrown out, she was not very popular in town. But Lizzie and Emma had inherited a very large portion of Andrew's money and property. And they suddenly found themselves being able to be in control of their lives and lived the way that they deemed fit. The rest of Andrew's wealth wound up going to members of Abby's family as well. Bridget, the maid, was given a sum of money, and it's said that she moved out to Montana and settled down and got married. As for Lizzie, she purchased a larger and more modern home for herself and Emma in another part of Fall River, which she dubbed Maplecroft and had a full crew of hired help from maids to housekeepers and even a coachman to drive them around town. Maplecroft is still around today, although it's a private residence, so you can't take a tour, and you really can only look at it from the street before you're trespassing on the property. So don't go there and trespass. (laughs) However, the original Borden home Where the murders took place is now a museum and bed and breakfast where you can book tours and learn about the whole history. One day, maybe I'll go there and I'll report back on it. I don't live that far away, so (laughs) we'll see. And according to guests of the Borden estate, ghost investigators and other paranormal enthusiasts say that the property is very much haunted. Visitors have reported seeing doors opening by themselves, lights going on and off, strange noises and disembodied footsteps. Some have captured strange phenomena and apparitions and photos, like figures of a woman who wasn't there when the photos were taken, ghostly faces and shadowy figures in the periphery staring back at them that some swear are the ghosts of Andrew and Abby Borden. They have the crime scene photos of what happened in the house too, in the rooms where they were murdered. And apparently there is a little bowl in front of a picture of Andrew Borden where you can offer his spirit some coins since he was such a penny pincher in life. And word is, if you steal any paranormal activity will start to ramp up because it angers his spirit. Now, despite the acquittal, Lizzie was still ostracized, like I said, by many in the community, and the drama didn't stop there. As there were accusations of her continuing to steal, there was one incident in Providence, Rhode Island, where people had blamed her and accused her of stealing from a store, and. A few years later in 1905, she wound up having a following out with her sister. And Emma moved out of Maplecroft and went up to New Market, New Hampshire. And they never spoke or saw each other again, still carrying on a torch of a toxic familial relationship. Lizzie Borden lived until 1927 at the age of 67 when she contracted pneumonia and died. And interestingly, nine days later, Emma died as well. And even though the two of them were estranged later in life, they're now buried next to each other in the Oak Grove Cemetery in Fall River, not far from where Andrew and Abby are also buried. So the question still remains, if Lizzie didn't murder her father and stepmother, which I'm not convinced she didn't. Who did? One theory is that the maid, Bridget or Maggie Sullivan, did the deed. Some think that she snapped after Abby had ordered her to go outside and clean windows on one of the hottest days in the summer. Bridget was inside during the murders after all, albeit allegedly sleeping in her attic bedroom which was likely hot as an oven so maybe her brain got scrambled and she decided to go in axe murder mode but that doesn't explain all the weird behavior by lizzie after the murders took place unless she was being fed all that morphine that she was prescribed by bridget to manipulate her according to some reports though in 1948 on her deathbed Bridget did confess to having lied and omitting truths to protect Lizzie Borden. So that's interesting. And then there's Uncle John Morse, who was an immediate suspect, perhaps because of his recoiling away from the dead bodies of his brother-in-law and his brother-in-law's second wife. But because there was some business and money involved between him and Andrew, I can see why they might think that there was foul play However, my feeling is that he wasn't involved and it was a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I'm sure there was an immediate suspicion over a man potentially committing the act of a double homicide versus a woman during this time period as well. And then there's, of course, Emma, Lizzie's sister, who did have an alibi, her friend that she was staying with in Fairhaven. Some propose the idea that she traveled back to Fall River to kill Andrew and Abby, snuck out, returned to Fairhaven, and then came back again once she received the telegram summons saying that there was an emergency and her parents were dead. This one seems the most far-fetched to me, and I don't really buy it at all. And then, of course, we have Lizzie Borden. And all of the evidence, even though it was deemed circumstantial by the jury at the trial along with her behavior afterwards pointed towards her being the who done it the only thing that was lacking was a piece of physical evidence something with blood like a dress with "quote unquote" paint stains on it likely the only solid piece of physical evidence that just so happened to be burned the day before she was knowing that she was going to be charged with homicide. And there was even the suspicious hatchet head, which had been clearly moved, but the handle was gone. Blood could have been easily cleaned off the metal, but a wood handle, I would think, would stain. But who's to say that she didn't take off the handle and burn that too? There was a record, actually, from the police who had had been stationed in the house that the night after the murder that Bridget and Lizzie were seen going down into the cellar of the house together with a bucket and some other things. And that makes me think that it's very possible. They could have gone down there to clean up the hatchet evidence And if it's true that she admitted on her deathbed that she had lied about things and omitted truths, she potentially knew that Lizzie was the one that did it and was just trying to protect her. And even if she was the murderer, why kill her parents so brutally? There is the motivation of being forced to live a very frugal life despite her father being very wealthy and believing she deserved better. The days leading up to the killings were also full of arguments and tension in the house with the dead pigeons, the selling of the horse. So maybe she just snapped and decided to end it. And it was a go big or go home type of situation. In this novel called Lizzie that was released in 1984 by the author Ed McBain, and this might be out of left field, but he speculated that it was possible that Lizzie and Bridget were secret lovers. Even though it's said that Bridget settled down in Montana, got married, and had a husband, Lizzie never married or really dated men from my understanding. So who knows? Maybe it's possible there was something going on. I'm not saying there was. But back then, the culture was different, and things like homophobia were exponentially more Prevalent and worse back then, especially in a religious household such as the Bordens. McBain presented the idea that maybe Andrew or Abby had caught them in the act of their forbidden love affair and that they didn't want information getting out to the public since the Bordens were known in Fall River. And later on, there were local rumors that Lizzie was a lesbian because she never had a man in her life. But the historical record doesn't show anything similarly being said about Bridget. And obviously we know she had a husband later in life. So this theory is probably bunk, but there's a lot of different theories out there. Another theory is that Lizzie committed the murders while in a fugue state. With the way she behaved before the murders and after, some have proposed the idea that she may have had some kind of dissociative personality disorder caused by years of trauma stemming back to childhood, which you can absolutely argue that she did, losing her mother at a very young age, growing up in a strict religious household, being withheld from a better standard of living when it was totally within the means of her father to provide that, And as a darker point, there was even evidence in the literature written about this whole thing, not a direct accusation, but things that described pointing to Andrew Borden being abusive to Lizzie and Emma growing up and potentially even to the realm of sexual assault from childhood into adulthood which would be far more than enough motive for someone to have the mindset and uh, willpower to do something like that, to just end it all. Ultimately, we won't ever know for sure who committed the murders, although based on everything that I've read and researched about this case, it seems clear that the most likely person who did it was Lizzie and she had help after the fact to cover things up. Definitely from Bridget, and probably Emma too, as her sister, equally if not more, hated Abby and had a great disdain for Andrew, and probably didn't want to see Lizzie jailed for the rest of her life. And it would seem that in the end, whoever did it got away with murder. And that, my friends, is where I'm going to leave things for the regular show today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's not often that I delve into true crime, but this was a story that I've been wanting to cover as part of my Oddities of New England series, and I hadn't done one yet this season. And with this case still being unsolved today, coupled with some spooky stuff that happens at the old Borden house... I felt like it was a great fit. So I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I want to give a huge thank you to everyone out there who listens to the show. Those of you who have been here since the beginning and to those who have joined along the way. So thanks for checking out the show, listening and sharing it around. It gets the word out and helps out so much. The Strangeology Podcast wouldn't be possible or wouldn't be where it is today without the support of listeners like you. There's a lot more to come, so stay tuned. And just a reminder, if you want to support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology to learn more, or you can head to the link in the show description for a few other methods to support the show as well. And if you love Fortean, cryptid and alien themed merch and want to support strangeology you can definitely check out my etsy shop i do all of my own designs and i've got a whole assortment of cryptozoology alien ufology and otherwise Fortean gear and accessories available for purchase The designs are available on things like t-shirts, hoodies, long sleeves, tank tops. I also have stickers, magnets, prints, mugs, tumblers, blankets, enamel pins, and more. I'm always trying to add new designs as often as I have time to do so, and looking into new types of products to have as well. You can find all of this at strangeology.etsy.com. Again, make sure to use the link strangeology.etsy.com. I appreciate all of your support. To any advertisers or companies out there looking to collaborate with the Strangeology podcast or would like to be considered for an interview on the show, please send all business inquiries to info at strangeology.com. And don't forget to give me a follow on my social media accounts for daily updates and more content outside of the podcast. You can find me on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, X, Threads, and YouTube as well. I'm trying to get around to making some longer form video content for my YouTube channel. So stay tuned for that. I'm most active posting short form video content on Instagram and TikTok So if you're looking for more from me, definitely check that out. All right. I think that's about enough from me for now. This was a doozy of an episode. So I'm going to take a short break. And when I come back for Strangeology Beyond, the members only portion of the show, I'm going to shift gears a bit and we're going to dive into some creepy stories about black eyed children. You won't want to miss it. Members, stick with me after this short break for Strangeology Beyond. And for everyone else, have a happy Halloween and I'll catch you next time. Make sure to take care of yourselves and each other and keep it strange.
1: members to Strangeology Beyond, your exclusive
0: portion of the show.